What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Back at it, podcast listeners, hanging out with Matt Burns. Matt Burns is kind of a jack of all trades. Currently, he's the founder and chief innovation officer for Bento HR. He's got he's a host of his own podcast as well, Thinking Inside the Box podcast. He is a globally recognized HR tech leader. He's been HR team of the year in 2018, most innovative use of HR tech in 2017. He's based in Vancouver, Canada. He doesn't say A as much as you would think, but I originally reached out to him, I don't know, maybe a year ago. We chatted for a little bit. We did a little product demo of Wedge, chatted for a while, and I realized, man, I'm on the phone with somebody who is so far out of my league uh, from a mental standpoint, from just, just the, the guy the guy has got a, a quite a bit of mental horsepower. So I had an absolute blast recording this podcast with him. He's a fantastic, fantastic man. And not to mention, Matt, he's got a pretty good name. So thanks again for being on the show. Excited for this episode. And uh, podcast listeners, enjoy. Well, Matt, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So where uh, remind me where in the world you're recording from. I am in beautiful Vancouver, Canada today. So is it... What's the temp like? Is it? Do you have snow? We do not have snow. We are lucky. Like we're on the west coast of Canada, so think Seattle, but three hours north. Uh, it rains a lot in the winter time. We get a couple days of snow in the winter around February, but overall, it's very mild and uh, beautiful. Love that. I have not been, but I've done Alaska, and there's five states that I haven't been to, and like Washington, Portland, you know, are are on the high up end of the list. But also, it sounds like I need to make it to Vancouver then. 
You absolutely do. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm uh, I'm stoked to hear your story. I know you've done some pretty amazing things and slash in the midst of doing some pretty amazing things. So would you mind just, you know, giving the audience a little bit of a story about, you know, your background and, and you know, where you're coming from? Yeah, happy to. I received some really good advice early in my career from a mentor who told me to chase experiences, not salary or titles, that they would come as a lagging measure of the experiences. And at the time, I didn't really understand what that meant, but I followed it as if I did. Uh, and that put me through a lot of cool opportunities one after another. Um, I've spent a better part of 20 years in the corporate world. 15 of those were in human resources. Uh, and the last five of my uh, years in the corporate world were spent as an HR executive. Uh, I spent time as an HR business partner uh, and in every specialist area of human resources with the exception of compensation. Uh, but the last five years were focused mostly on transformation. So uh, I would support things like engagement strategies, uh, technology transformations, uh, big data and analytics, and then leading a number of large restructuring projects. And I got to a bit of a, um, I'll call it a intersection of my life about three to four years ago where I found myself leading and architecting and executing large restructuring projects one after another. Uh, and they're not um, terribly fun projects in the sense that you know that your efforts are often going to lead to the loss of jobs for lots of people. Uh, and the first couple that you go through, you can rationalize as being part of the, the greater good and to help the company be more efficient and more successful. That helps you know the customers and helps the other employees in the organization. But after a while, you start to see names on spreadsheets and they take on greater meaning. And uh, I had a great mentor at that time as well who said, Matt, the moment that these start to feel routine for you and you start to feel numb about the activities, you need to give me a heads up because it's time for you to take a step back. I need somebody who's going to be efficient with the activity, but also show a lot of empathy with the activity. And after having done three of them in a row, um, I made the decision to take a step back and have that conversation. And we agreed that it was time for me to take a pause from restructuring. And at that time, I was really looking for something new in my career uh, and wanted to move um, to back to Vancouver, where I was from, and at the same time, pursue some more educational pursuits. So I did that simultaneously, started an MBA program, and then left my current organization and joined a smaller organization that said the magic words that every HR professional wants to hear, which is, you can do whatever you want. Um, as long as you can build a business case around your strategy, we will let you architect the strategy in your vision and hopefully and intentionally it is going to help us grow and have success on a go forward basis. Was that a, so was that an unusual, unusual circumstance that you were in? Like, or do you feel like there's a lot of people who get that sort of blank canvas as long as it makes sense for the business? Or do you think that was pretty unique to you? It was incredibly unique. Um, cool. more often than not in HR, the play has already been called and your job is to run the play. Sure. So, um, you know, there's a, there's an organizational mandate around growth or around talent or around cost containment. Uh, and there's still far too many organizations that view human resources as either a compliance arm of the company or an administrative arm of the company and don't view it in a strategic lens. Uh, and if they do, they view it in a strategic execution lens, not in a strategic ideation lens. So the fact this organization said, we will let you actually conceptualize a strategy and build a team around it and rally resources and, and you know, leverage technology and data to, to enable this strategy was unique. Um, and that's the reason why I joined the company was I wanted the opportunity, frankly, to see if the ideas I had bounced around my head actually made sense in an operating environment. Uh, 
At the same time, it was a smaller company, so it gave me an opportunity to do an MBA simultaneously and really incorporate and integrate that learning into my into my work uh, at the corporate entity. Uh, and uh, over the course of a couple of years, we did a, a few unique things. So when we joined the organization um, in terms of the corporate setting, there was about 1,500 employees, about 40 locations coast to coast here in Canada, two different uh, languages, English and French, but no real formal strategic HR function. They had personnel in the traditional sense. I mean, there was administration that was happening, there was payroll, but there was no strategic arm of the company around HR. So they asked me to build that, and I decided that I wanted to build it with the foundation of technology. Uh, the reason being is that HR is an administratively burdensome function in an organization. There's a lot of paper that goes back and forth, a lot of checking the boxes, and a lot of chasing people and following up. Uh, but ultimately, that's not where I believe HR is best suited to be in organizations. I believe it should be in more of a strategic performance context, helping employees you know, realize incremental performance, helping the organization realize its strategic mandate. Uh, and that, to me, extends beyond spreadsheets and paper. So we built a technology stack that um, was going to allow us to automate all that manual administration and focus on the things that actually made sense um, for HR to perform. Uh, and the way we went about that was a bit unique insofar as, it, it, for those who aren't aware, when you procure HR technology in the market, generally speaking, you talk to large established vendors who have multiple different modules for hiring and for training and for payroll. And they have these, you know, they call them suites of technologies that you can procure. Um, and in doing so, um, you kind of, it's because they're a larger entity, they're, they're inflexible around adjusting to fit your requirements. There's generally a single price and a single way the system works. And they often are relying on the HR teams corporately to adjust their strategies to kind of fit within the technology, if that makes sense. Um, call me old fashioned, but I believe that technology should serve humanity. So I was looking for technologies that actually would be adaptable and flexible and nimble enough to fit within our existing strategies because I know far better as the CHRO in that company what makes sense for the organization from a process policy strategy perspective, not the technology vendor. So we eschewed the traditional approach, went to the market, found five different vendors for five different types of HR technology, tied them all together on the back end, essentially creating our own enterprise solution. Uh, it did so at a, at a fraction of the cost and did so in 12 months. Um, and that was something that was not traditionally done when we did this about three, four years ago. Uh, it's more commonplace now. Uh, and ultimately was the right decision for us because we were able, as I said, to move very quickly with the strategy and with a technology stack that was able to meet all of our needs. Uh, today, um, today in the yeah. uh, quick question on that, because I would say the concept of HR tech is no longer like a hidden gem. Like it's one of the more attractive spaces that people are stepping into now. Um, yeah. Three, four years ago when you were doing it, was it considered sort of non-conventional or non-traditional or did you get backlash in the concept of saying we want to sort of build our own internal enterprise in the hr tech space or do you feel like at the time it was well received to approach it that way so it was well received by the other stakeholders in the organization that were outside the hr function but there's still an element of the traditional hr function that has a resistance to technology and data uh, and that's largely as because we, as we talked about as we've talked about with my video interviewing platform i get that yep. <laughs> very much so <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's what, just, it's, what do you think that attributes what? to so i have a i have a theory but i i'm, I'm not gonna i don't want to speak for the broader group but here's what here's what i can say my experience when i started in hr most of my mentors and coaches were baby boomers 
um, and they fit the traditional archetype of an HR professional. They usually came from a learning and development background or a teaching background or a social work background. So their, their, their experience, their, their passions, their interest was all very much based on this, this idea of human interaction in a face-to-face, -face, um, you know, face-to-face -face facilitation, face-to-face -face coaching. Uh, and the idea of introducing technology and data was viewed as dehumanizing that experience and giving somebody a less um, humanistic experience. In, I, the, the, the link I draw actually is, I think most of our listeners will remember when we didn't have ATMs and we had bank tellers. When ATMs were introduced, people were like, well, I'm not gonna talk to a machine, I wanna talk to the teller. And now, flash forward how many years later, most people would prefer to actually deal with online banking and go to the ATM machine and not actually deal with the teller. It was the same kind of mentality 15 years ago in HR where I want to speak to my HR person. I want to be able to be the person who interviews somebody face-to-face. -face. I want to be the person who does the face-to-face -face coaching. Whereas now, as the generations move forward, the fact is the majority of millennials and Gen Z actually prefer to deal with chatbots or prefer to deal with video interviewing as opposed to a face-to-face -face interaction because it's more efficient, it's more equal, um, and it's a, it's a more seamless candidate experience as far as the hiring is concerned. And that extends into the HR experience internally is that there's this natural tension between technology and data and this human experience. I've always believed you can integrate both of them, that there are some tasks that are best suited for computers and AI. Those are mostly the manual repetitive transactional tasks that don't add a lot of value. Um, nobody gets a ton of value from me chasing you, asking you for all of your onboarding forms. There's no value in that for you or for me. It's irritating for both parties, but there is value if you have a complaint or a concern and want to file a complaint about harassment, for example. I don't want to put a chat bot between us. I want to have a conversation. Um, so there's, there's certain situations where that human interaction still is incredibly valuable, but it's delineating between the two. We were intentional about that with our strategy and said, which activities would be best served by technology and which need to be maintained by HR and staff them appropriately. So I'm going to ask a question that's going to come across as horribly like generalizing. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to, I just want to load that. I want to load that up at, 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 at face value. It has seemed, and I've heard some very high up people in the HR tech space. And in fact, I've also heard a lot of HR professionals refer to the broader group as this, but I have occasionally gotten a sense, and I'm trying to be as cautious as I possibly can around this question, but I've occasionally gotten a sense that there are a there there seems to be a element of defensiveness or like being uh, HR sort of feeling the need to defend or yeah, I guess just overall defensiveness about what they're doing or they're being wrong or whatever that is. I mean, have you understood where sort of that comes from? And, and maybe I'm completely off of my basis, but I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, defensiveness in the context of advancing down a technology framework or just defensiveness in general? Probably more along the technology framework, but I, it seems as if, and I can, I guess my theory on it to frame the question is that it seems like, as you mentioned before, the play has already been called and then therefore it's the, it's the HR team to go, you know, actually run the play. And it seems like there's a lot of people who are pulling on HR, telling HR what to do or something like that. And so it, it seems, I don't, I don't know exactly what, you know, the gut reaction or where I've, you know, all the different routes I've heard it, but I would, I would say for the sake of this conversation, probably on the technology side of things. 
so it's a it's it could be a different podcast entirely but i'm this is an interesting and fascinating question and i'll i'll lay out my you know kind of caveat first which is that i have been fortunate and i have accelerated through my career as an hr practitioner largely because i have been able to connect on multiple levels with other executives outside the hr profession so I would be the HR leader that the CEO would want to work with on a one-to-one basis or the CFO on a one-to-one basis because I can understand the broader business context, P&L, those types of integral parts of the broader business. I was never a HR leader. I was a business leader who sat in HR. So I'll put that aside. Um, I think some of the defensiveness that you mentioned comes down to a few factors. The first one that you've already referenced, which is that a lot of times HR is not part of the strategic decision-making, but is given the direction and given the direction for programs that ultimately they would be, that would be beneficial if they were to contribute to the ideation of, but the organization for whatever reason doesn't seem fit to want to include them in the conversation. It's the proverbial seat at the table discussion. In a lot of organizations still, HR isn't at that table, um, and therefore they're being given direction, and they may not agree with the direction, but they're being told to execute it. So that's part one. Um, part two is that natural tension I mentioned between technology and data and the human experience, and there are still individuals who believe those things that come in conflict with one another, um, and there's a concern around that. Uh, the, the third thing, which is, again, a basic human need, is there's a level of, of job security, because absent of understanding what technology and data can unlock in terms of you know, capacity and in terms of skill sets and in terms of capabilities, it's viewed as a replacement. So if I embrace technology, does that mean I'm going to eventually lose headcount on my team? Um, because in a lot of organizations, the view of technology really is it's an automation tool, it's an efficiency tool, and it really is a mechanism to reduce your headcount and reduce your cost base. Uh, and that may fly in the face of what HR strategy would be. So they find themselves in the position of always having to react. Um, and that puts them in an awkward position. And the last thing that I'll say on this point is the majority of activities that are performed by HR are tasks that the majority of senior leaders believe they can perform themselves, but would rather not. So what I mean by that is if you talk to most executives and you poll them and say, how many of you are really good at identifying and developing talent? The vast majority are going to say, I'm amazing at it. I'm a CEO. I'm a CFO. I'm a vice president. I've gotten here because I've been able to spot, identify, and build really great teams. And the, the, the harsh reality is the majority of people, including some HR folks, are not very good at identifying and building teams. Um, and because of that, there's this, I'm pushing the work down to HR because I have, quote, unquote, more important things to do. You hire the people. I'll make the final decision, but I need you to handle all the legwork back and forth so I can focus on the things that are actually more important to the business. There's a bit of that kind of narrative that exists in some organizations. And that, again, creates a tension around HR being kind of the list takers and not the individuals who are helping to develop a list in the first place. And I think all four of those factors conspire to create that defensiveness around it. Ultimately, I believe the solution to all that is you need to integrate your HR strategy and your HR practice within the broader business mandate. You need to find organizations and leaders to work with to influence so that you can become part of that conversation and that narrative. And you need to demonstrate the efficacy of your strategy in quantifiable and qualifiable measures to demonstrate what you're able to accomplish that will get you more rope, that will get you more of a mandate, that will get you more resources. 
But if you sit back in your in your you know silo and complain that the world is against you, it, you're not going to advance that mission at all. And I see a bit too much defensiveness and not enough enough you know people reaching out to integrate. Um, we can we can talk about this all day long, but the reality is in most organizations, HR is a cost center, and therefore you're constantly having to justify your own existence. Whereas a function like marketing is a revenue driver, it's a completely different relationship with the organization. So knowing that HR is that cost center, you're having to constantly demonstrate your efficacy, justify your own existence, build relationships, and influence without any real authority. So super loaded question, but do you feel like more organizations need to have a business-minded person sitting in HR? I think every organization needs to have a business-minded person sitting in HR. I mean, the business and HR to me are completely integrated. Most organizations are the, are the byproduct of their people. And HR is tasked with being the individuals who support those people in a number of different ways. So to me, if the person at the top of the food chain, if you will, around HR does not have a business mindset, you're in a lot of trouble because they're not going to be able to connect the people strategy to the broader business. And therefore, there'll be a misalignment between the two. I'm tracking. I like it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with you. We could probably spend all day talking about uh, this <laughs> concept, mainly because it's one of those things. So we've talked a little bit about uh, my background, but but not coming from HR whatsoever and stepping into it and probably being, you know, when I step in and I, I present a new opportunity, just the backlash and the hesitation at times that I get, it's just fascinating to sort of learn and see where that comes from. And I can, I can totally see how so many meetings that I've had throughout the past five years, four and a half years have been CEO, CFO, operations manager, some way, shape or form telling the HR manager that they need to take a meeting with me and the HR manager is not having it. And, and, but they had to take the meeting because they have to do it. And so it's just interesting to see some of the different just dynamics. And then, and then you run into a business minded HR person, you could just see a very, very different shift. So I, I find that fascinating. So that's awesome. So in that, in that point, just let's, let's deploy a, a little bit of empathy for like 15 seconds. So sure. imagine you are the head of your function. So you've been tasked by the organization to lead a corporate function. It's human resources. And within that function, recruitment is a key part of your overall mandate. You're spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week working in that job, building the strategy, executing the plan, dealing with all of the day-to-day issues and building that long-term strategy. Somebody from the organization comes in, helicopters in, says, hey, I saw someone at a trade show or I saw a, you know, a, a Facebook ad or I got an email in my inbox from this solution. It seems to be a really good thing about hiring. I think you should do it based on the fact that I've seen this advertisement or had this conversation and you should go ahead and, and this should be the thing that we do. How is that going to feel for the HR person who's living and breathing that world, having somebody come in as if they have expertise in that area, but they're not asking for their opinion. It's not a conversation. It's a direction. Well, it's so the same exact way when I, when I go to our dev team and say, Hey, we're not moving fast enough. Why don't we outsource our dev shop rather than keep yep. it internal They're like for as high pie in the sky as it sounds good. The, the, I, so I can at, point is spot on. It's one of those helicopter attitudes of, I know nothing what I'm talking about, but this bright, shiny thing makes so much sense. So drop everything and do it. <laughs> yeah. And it's not malicious. It's not about being malicious to HR, but that's again, if you're in this position, where 
you're constantly getting those types of requests and everyone believes they're an expert in hiring and training and developing and coaching and performance management and that you're just a mechanism for the administration of it, it can start to feel like you're not being appreciated. Um, and I'm not saying that's the right approach. I'm, I understand why that's the reaction. I believe that those individuals, what they should do is they should have the conversation with the vendor in this case, but they should also have it with the person who recommended it and break down for them you know, this is why this works. This is why this might not work in our broader strategy. Let's just have a discussion about that. So rather than taking it personally, use it as an opportunity to educate within your organization and to build that influence so that you actually create other agents that you want people bringing you feedback. You actually want people bringing you best practices, but you want them to bring the best practices that align well with the organization. And if they're not, they don't know what you're doing and they're not, they're not aware of how, what the alignment looks like, they're going to bring you those types of things. So for me, it's, you can view lots of problems two ways or more than two ways, but for me, it's an opportunity to educate and influence, not be defensive about it. I like it. I like it a lot. Thank you for that. And thank you for humoring me in that, in that probably loaded and not intended to be a generalization, <laughs> but, but just something I've always sort of wondered and you seem like the perfect person to ask that question to. So thank you on that. Um, so well, I want, I want to, I want to keep rolling with, 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 with your story and just some of the amazing things that uh, you've done. So I got to ask, walk me through the million dollar charity. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation because um, the MBA that I referenced earlier took me to four different cities around the world. And one of them was Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we met with some students that um, were in a university entrance prep program. So these are students that were coming out of high school, going to university. Uh, and in Brazil, education is, is different than it is in North America. Um, the high schools uh, are public and private. Universities are entirely public, but because there's limited spaces, Generally speaking, the individuals who have money send their kids to private high school, those kids go to university, the kids who do not come from money go to public high school, the educational quality is not as high, and very few of them go to public universities. So there's a real income inequality conversation around who's getting educated and who's not, which causes parents to have to choose very early on in their, their child's livelihoods, um, does this child need to go to high school at all or to just go to work? Uh, and in an environment where Poverty is a reality for a lot of families um, where there are many people living under the same roof, where there is a lot of socioeconomic issues and societal issues. Um, what ends up happening is a lot of students don't actually go to university and don't go to high school. Um, but these individuals were gifted. They were from you know, underprivileged communities. They were going to university entrance prep program with the goal of them being able to go forward and get the proper testing results to go to university to be able to get that degree, to get that good job. And in doing so, they'd be able to completely transform their family, family's lives and lift them out of poverty. Um, so these kids were you know, 16, 17, telling us their stories about how they're taking the bus three hours to and from school every single day, telling us the, the pain of having to go to a university entrance prep program, knowing that they aren't earning money for their family and they may get evicted next month because they don't have money to pay their, their rent. Um, so real life, altering pressure on kids, you know, 16 years old. And as I'm hearing them tell their stories, I'm thinking to myself, I'm in Brazil, I paid my MBA in cash. I'm using this to enrich myself, to be able to pursue an, a, a further advance my executive career path. And I just felt completely disconnected with reality and completely sheltered from reality and said, I can't leave this country and go back into the machine, if you will, and earn a lot of money and pretend like I didn't see this. 
So I'm going to need to change my perspective in some way. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I knew that my perspective had to change. Over the course of the next kind of six to nine months, I talked to hundreds of people trying to find some purpose, trying to connect what I felt was my unique values and my unique skill sets in a way that was going to give back to society. And I ultimately landed on um, the idea that I would raise a million dollars for charity and do so using the skills and talents that I had acquired over 20 years in the corporate world. And um, did so because I realized that I actually am not motivated by money. I'm not motivated by material things. I'm motivated by helping people and solving problems. Though the money and the material things came as a byproduct of that. And I bought into that narrative that I deserve that and I'd earned this and this was mine. Uh, and I realized that was a very selfish way of looking at the world. And I wanted to change that narrative for myself. So the businesses that I've launched now are social enterprises where I cover my costs, I pay myself a nominal salary, and the rest of the money that I earn, I give away to charity. Um, I do so in a really um, quiet, unassuming kind of way. I did a big launch. I actually kind of, to be honest, I actually regret making the big splash announcement. Uh, there was a lot of people who at the time accused me of doing it to draw attention to myself or to you know, self-market, when in reality, it was meant to inspire people and let them know what I was doing with my life. So I've tried to keep a pretty low profile since then around that topic. Um, and ultimately, the, the proof will be in the impact that we're able to make. So back to your point of sort of chasing uh, what is your broader purpose, your broader sort of social impact that you hope to have, I guess, ultimately, what helped you sort of arrive at the ultimate decision that you made on that? I mean, what, what was it that steered you in that direction? What helped sort of create the lane for you to drive down as far as your, your greater impact above and beyond just the byproduct of material wealth? Yeah, I think it just, it goes back to that, the comment around what really inspires me, um, what gets me up in the morning. For me, it's helping people. Um, and for me, it is um, in, in transferring value. Like I love to see people have success and I love to develop people. I was in HR for the majority of my career. I love to enable the success of others. And I well, love the fact to- that you were willing to demo, you were willing to do a demo of my product simply just out of the sheer goodness of your heart and give me feedback shows that uh, I'm sure you have very, very busy days, but you're not afraid to make a few minutes for somebody else to help them out. So that alone showed me that there's a lot greater depth to your character other than just sort of selfish desires. Yeah. And I, I think ultimately we're all pulling on the same rope. So I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm, I'm one guy sitting in Vancouver, Canada. What we're all trying to solve for, I believe, is to make this planet a better place. And I believe that we each have unique gifts and skills that enable us to do that. What I tried to do was connect my unique gifts and skills in the way that I thought would have the biggest impact. And the way that I can have the biggest impact is by making organizations more human centric. We spend the majority of our waking hours in the workplace. And if I can make workplaces more human centric, that will make those experiences for those employees better, which will make their lives better, which will ultimately make all of our lives better. So I try and do that in a way that is integrating technology and data and culture together. I try and solve problems. I try and support and enable people. Um, and that's the best way that I can do that. I'm essentially using the toolbox that has been gifted to me over the course of 20 years of experience and, and countless mentors and organizations and experiences and projects and education that I've had. The culmination of all that is I have a, a really compelling toolkit that helps me deliver significant results in this one very specific area 
So for me, it made sense to use that toolkit because I could make a much bigger impact there than if I was to do something completely different than what I had started with. Um, I still would have the same level of personal satisfaction, but I don't think the impact would be as great. So I really wanted to use the skills and the gifts that I had done uh, and acquired to do that. And the alignment about how it fits into the purpose really was what motivates me. I really stepped, uh, stepped away from myself and said, if I look at my life right now, at the time I was, you know, I was an executive, I was in my early 30s, but at the same time, as much as those things look good on paper, I can tell you that my personal relationship wasn't very good with my partner. My family relationships weren't very good. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was lonely a lot of the time. I was, my health was terrible. My diet, my, my mental health, everything else with the exception of my career was in shambles. Uh, and for me going forward, I said, this doesn't make sense for me either. I need to do things and find ways to create a life that is enriching to myself, but not in a material way. Um, the material wealth that we'll create will give away, but if we can all live more happy, satisfying lives in the process, that to me is a win. So what is majority of your time spent now? <laughs> Running around from one thing to the other, um, but, <laughs> jokes, but jokes aside, um, we're in an interesting part of our business. I just came out of the first year. We've, we launched Bento HR uh, in June of 2019, so we're only really Congrats. been on the market thank you for five months. Um, and it was, it's been a tremendous learning experience as an entrepreneur. Um, for those who are entrepreneurs who are listening to this, you'll appreciate this uh, well, because you've been through this experience, but you know, 20 years in the corporate world gives you a lot of skills. Many of them are not translatable to being an entrepreneur. So, you know, I am amazing at having meetings. I'm amazing at managing politics. I'm really good at moving stale and stagnant projects through a bureaucracy to get them over the line. Um, but when you are a business of one, there is no bureaucracy, there is no politics, there's only you. Uh, and as a result of that, you have to butt up against a lot of things that you may not have had to do for quite some time. I was having this actually yesterday with a CHRO who's also become a consultant recently. And we we're talking about, we haven't picked up the tools in 10 years. I haven't actually done any HR work in close to 10 years prior to becoming a consultant. I was leading the work through other people. Um, so I spent a lot of my time the first year just learning how to be an entrepreneur, learning how to run a business end to end and not run a division within a broader company. Um, and I feel like now that I've gone through those learnings and those lessons and made a ton of mistakes along the way, that next year I'm really excited about you know, taking those learnings with me and bringing them forward because I feel like as the business grows and evolves and develops, it actually gets more and more into my comfort zone or I'm able to have a bigger and bigger impact. So I'm super excited for 2020. Right now I'm closing up the activities for this year uh, and really focusing in on planning uh, for next year. And then somewhere along the way, I'll take a break, maybe a nap somewhere in December. I don't see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody pretends that they're going to, and once you get the bug for entrepreneurship, it just never, it never happens. <laughs> yep. So what are, you, uh, what are you most excited about coming up? I'm most excited about stepping into an area that for me brings me a lot of personal satisfaction and I know it helps a lot of people, which is creating more content. So in 2019, I took a step back from content creation and delivery and focused a lot on satisfying contracts and building business and, and standing up into HR and getting that business off the ground. Uh, 2020 for me, now that it's, it's up and running and we're having some success, it's putting me back where I think that I have best, I'm in best service to the overall organization, which is in writing and in speaking and in 
um, launching my own podcast and in doing the things that allow me to share knowledge with the broader HR community and the broader business community um, as well. Um, and to do that in a way that is um, both educational, but inspirational. I'm excited to do that. Um, and then from a business perspective, I also know that when I do that, that does generate awareness and does generate interest in our products and services. And a portion of those people that interact with that content will become customers. So I'm looking forward to 2020 being a year where I get to kind of, again, step back out from the shadows a bit and be more present and be more uh, intentional about where I'm at. And I'm just excited to help a bunch of people. So over the next several weeks, I'm going to have a number of announcements about how I'm going to go about doing that. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, putting away my my limited and failing career as a bookkeeper. <laughs> I'm right there with you. The concept of sending invoices and tracking things, I would be, I'm, I'm basically for our own small company, a, a liability when it comes to being a bookkeeper. I'm horrendous at it. <laughs> uh, here, me as well. <laughs> so you you touched on the my my the the favorite question is is what gets you out of bed in the morning the most I'm going to ask it slightly different and slightly a little bit deeper so if you died tomorrow which I hope you don't but you happen to have an impact on one person and it was the exact impact you hope you had what would that be Wow that is a deep question Whew. Um, I think if I can give a message to one person, it would be that the only thing that limits your impact on this planet is you, that you need to harness your gifts and your talents and direct those into the world. And if you do that, you're going to have a huge impact. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So your company now, Bento HR, is that is that's that's entirely based out of Vancouver. You got people all over the all over the country. We've got people in Vancouver, in Seattle, and actually in Nigeria as well. So we are a truly global organization. Uh, but well, the origins of the company started in Ballard, Washington, which is a suburb outside of Seattle. We actually came up with the name in a sushi restaurant. True story. Um, while we were looking at bento boxes on the menu. Uh, and the reason the name came out of that conversation was we, you know, my, my partners in the business are technologists. They focus in on technology integration, data aggregation uh, to make organizations more effective, uh, largely in mergers and acquisitions or in high growth companies. Uh, and with my experience as an HR professional, I knew that that level of technology was important to realize the vision that I was trying to create, which was a technology and data enabled HR strategy. Uh, so what we did was we, but we had an understanding as a group to say, the majority of people in HR are not as passionate about technology and data as perhaps I am. What most people are looking for is freedom within a framework. They're looking for the boxes. They're looking for like a bento box. You have a limited number of choices, but you can have a variety of choices of what you're looking for to take the guesswork out of it. Uh, and the technology market in HR now, I just got back from HR Tech in Vegas. There was 500 exhibitors at a conference. I must have seen 30 to 35 vendors focusing on artificial intelligence and recruitment alone. The market is oversaturated with providers. So as an HR professional, you are being inundated with emails and messages and LinkedIn notes and business cards on buy this, buy that. It's going to solve all your problems. And it's confusing. 
So what we've done at Bento HR is or take by away the time, the- By the time you uh, switch over to a new provider, you're about ready to switch to a completely other new one as well, too. <laughs> totally. And I can't tell you the number of times we work with a company that's in the midst of switching to an ATS that I know a year from now will probably be, be switching to a new ATS. Of course. And it's just, and, and, and the reality is going forward, that's going to become more commonplace as technology is more um, transactional, is more flexible. I mean, now with SaaS and with open APIs and single sign-on, you can flop things in and out in less than 30 days. It's no longer a two-year implementation project with waterfall and five project managers and, you know, Gantt charts. It, it becomes a much more user-friendly experience of swapping in, swapping out. In saying that, it's still incremental work. It still requires the HR leaders in the organization to understand what they're looking for, how it solves their problems, and how their processes need to change after they make those investments in technology and data. At Bento HR, we do that. We wrap that and we wrap our boxes in business outcomes. So for example, one of our boxes talks to engaging talent. What we would do in that scenario is work with the client and say, okay, what are we trying to solve for? We're trying to engage your talent. Okay, what are measures of success look like? We co-develop a business case for the initiative. And then we work with them and say, okay, what technologies do you have? How can we augment them? How do we supplement them and complement them? What data do you have? How do we augment, complement, and supplement that? And we bring all of those together through integrations, through implementations, and then through aggregations to give them an HR strategy that is consistent with what they want their, to, to achieve their vision, but is powered by technology and data. And we teach them and their teams how to use those systems and, and data on the other side of that transformation so that it's sustainable and that it becomes part of the, the ongoing routine. And we basically are taking them through digital HR transformation in three to six month journeys. All of our projects end up becoming self-funded because I was a CHRO and RO, I know what levers to pull in organizations to save money and how to have the biggest impact. So we just align our projects in those areas um, and in doing so, make our customers really, really happy. And I love helping people and I love helping HR people in particular. And as somebody who has worked in the quote unquote traditional HR world and then also in the modern HR world, if I can help bridge HR professionals to that modern world and help them create more human-centric workplaces, as I mentioned before, it accomplishes my goal of helping create workplaces that we all want to work in. I love it. I love it. It's, I love what you guys are doing and I love the the space that you're in. And I think it's an awesome byproduct of the way SaaS is evolving as, as a SaaS provider. It's always really fascinating to me to step into an organization and figure out that a company has five or six or seven different solutions that they're trying to pair. And you've already got an HR team, as we alluded to way earlier, that's overwhelmed with all these different tasks and the concept of jumping around from from tool to tool to tool to tool is, is just quite frankly overwhelming. So I, I love the mission. I love what you guys are doing. I, you're playing in a huge market as far as the opportunity that I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, and it's 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 the space where we feel like we can make the biggest amount of impact. And uh, unlike some of our the people that are on the market with us, it's the fact that I sat in the seat. I, I was a CHRO. I know the conversations. I know the pressures. I know the narratives. I know the challenges and the headwinds. There is not a single year that I was a CHRO. My budget wasn't decreased from the previous year. I worked in retail. I didn't have money. I had to stretch a dollar very, very far. So as a result, we apply that same thinking to our customers' projects, and we try and give them incredible value for money. And you actually can create more human-centric workplaces and spend less money and use technology and make those investments. 
It just requires a bit of creativity around how you do that. And we supplement that knowledge by having that, that detailed experience, but also the market awareness to be able to say, what is your strategy CHRO? Let's realize it through our mechanism. And then we do it together. That's good stuff. And then what's, what's typically the, you might've already said this, but what's the typical uh, company size you guys work with or the HR team size? We work with companies as small as 120 um, and as large as 30,000. So we're all over the map. We're geographically in North America, in Western Europe, and, and as well in South America. Uh, our sweet spot tends to be in the 500 to kind of $5,000 range, uh, 5,000 person range, sorry. Um, and that tends to be where we play best. Cool. What's your, what do you get the biggest kick out of? I like the, the more mess, the better. Like if it's an absolute train wreck, I like that to me is the most fun. When somebody says, Matt, we, everything is legacy. It's falling apart or we have nothing. I love architecting something that is complicated uh, and making it simple. Um, I love to make the complex simple. Um, and that for me is the most rewarding. So your HR tech for dummies without the dummy part. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I might be the dummy in most, most some days, but uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm trying to make it, I'm trying to make HR technology and data accessible for an audience of people that have more than enough on their plate. So we're trying to make it easy. That's why we've organized it that way. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being a, for being a guest. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? No, I just, you know, I would say, um, you know, that, that final comment around values and finding your purpose, uh, it took me a long way. Uh, it took me a long time. I went through a lot of really challenging days and, and crisis of conscience. And I promise you that when you come from an executive place where you're having success and making good money and everyone thinks that, you know, their titles are important and your parents are bragging about your, your jobs and things like that and you make the move to entrepreneur, there's lots of moments where you're thinking to yourself, did I make the right decision? And I've had many of those days as an entrepreneur, as I'm sure you have as well. Um, and ultimately, it's that broader purpose that you're trying to connect to that will sustain you through those dark days. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for the, for the kids that I met in Sao Paulo. I'm doing this for my $1 million goal. I'm doing this to create human-centric workplaces. And that propels me through those darker days. And I would encourage people that are considering their purpose to find that that will sustain you when you're having those tough times. That is a fantastic way for me selfishly to go about the rest of my day, the rest of my week, the rest of my month. That's just a good word. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much for being a guest in the podcast. Thanks for having me.